Real quick before we begin, in this episode we do discuss sexual assault. If you are a survivor looking for hope, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. It's free and totally confidential and available to use 24-7. The number is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. On with the show. Welcome, our furious mutts, to another exciting episode of Cadaver Dogs Podcast. I'm Rob Asercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. Now, before we get going, please follow us at Cadaver Dogs Pod on our Instagram page. And Devin actually has a really exciting announcement for us. Yeah, we have t-shirts. What? We have Cadaver Dogs branded t-shirts. I'm really excited. You know, I I really just made these for you guys for Christmas and then you guys like them so much. We were like, oh, we should sell these. So they're going to be up on my Etsy page where actually you can also purchase the trivia shows that we have as a physical product if you want to play with your friends. But yeah, check out, we'll, we'll drop the link in the show notes. The shirts are inspired by William Castle posters. Um, they're a little eerie, a little retro, kind of vintage band tee. So, uh, yeah, if you guys want to go check them out, check out the link. Um, I'll drop a promo code, too, in our description. So, um, yeah, I'm excited that this is happening. We have fucking merch, guys. They're fucking dope is what they are. (laughs) It's a fucking next step for the Cadaver Dogs podcast to actually have. Devin designed these by herself without even telling us, and she did such a good fucking job. (laughs) Oh, thanks, David. Uh, These these shirts are dope. I love them. Yeah, they're super cool. I'm so happy they turned out well. <laughs> we'll have to uh, post some pics on the Instagram soon as that, uh, I mean, that that is exciting news, but I think our audience is here for a reason. And uh, before oh, we get fine. going, I just wanted to say, I, I saw some pretty good movies this past week as I've been trying to get in all those 2022 uh, watches now that the year has ended. What'd you say? I really enjoyed the menu, which I saw last night. It was okay. Yeah, I wasn't enthused. Oh, I was blown away. I thought it was awesome. It was very funny. It uh, It's kind of like a satire of like the fine dining stratosphere. Have you seen a Triangle of Sadness? No. Okay. It's, it's, it's not horror, but it's the same movie as the menu, except better in every way. Mm. Yes. David and I saw this together, and at the end <laughs> of the movie, we both sat there, and we were like, I'm going to need a minute, but oh my god. <laughs> I... I, I'm surprised because I really like the menu, so I think it would have to be a whole lot better. The Triangle of Sadness is fucking amazing. That's that's is easily it? one of the best movies of the last year. Yeah, Rob, easily. there's a 20 minute scene in which people just shit themselves and throw up. Yep, I, that's not really a selling point to me. I don't I don't know why. Oh, I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not really a selling point. Yeah. Well, they're all wealthy, rich people, so uh, it, yeah. it's fun to watch them get tortured. Yeah, does that help? Um, yeah. And while this is going on, uh, Woody Harrelson and some Russian guy are uh, having a philosophical war where they just quote famous communists and capitalists back and forth at each other. Mm. <laughs> David was so excited. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I also saw Black Phone finally, which I really enjoyed. Oh, yay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you that guys was did okay. so well. At, I think everything that you guys listed at the end of our uh, what did we like about 2022 and what did we miss, by the time that we posted our honorable mentions, you had like added all the ones that you had missed by the end of the year. Yeah. I tried to get in almost every single movie that I hadn't seen yet. Jeez. I finally saw Mr. Harrigan's phone. <gasps> did you like um, it? It was okay. Oh damn! I, I thought you would I, like I that was, one. I was into it until the ending. The ending sucked. The end. The ending really brings down the whole movie. I liked the ending. I mean, it doesn't have a ton of closure, but I'm okay with exactly. that. It's just kind of like a strange slice of life movie, which it's like a coming of age kind of coming of age movies rarely have closure. Agreed. It, it felt like they they ended the movie at after Act Two, and there's just mm. no Act Three. I kind of disagree. I think that's part of the genre, but yeah, I I, I was satisfied. Okay. I saw Speak No Evil after being inspired by several people in Brucker's uh, <laughs> Discord saying, "Oh my God, I got so fucked up from this movie." <laughs> mm. I want to see that one. I haven't gotten around to it. It's uh, it's heavy, man. It's heavy. It's Is worth it? it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> worth it. Have you seen Pearl yet, Rob? No, I haven't. I I didn't okay. like X, so it's kind of hard for me to. Like run out and see Pearl. So I thought X wasn't very good. So I'm like, eh. I don't like slashers that have bad kills. I'm sorry. Pearl's X not a didn't slasher. have any kills. Is that... Pearl a slasher? No. We talked about this. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also want to see uh what is it, Deadly Night or whatever? The new Santa movie. You guys saw that. Violet right? Night. Yeah, Violet we saw that. Night. Wow, I thought you were there. I inputted you in my memory as <laughs> being there. Did, did you? <laughs> I hope I was the best part of the night. It's okay. We're going to go all see Megan together <laughs> later this week. It's yes. happening. We have yes. to do it. Please. Oh, oh, we did. We all saw separately. We saw the new Avatar, which oh, God, I liked yeah, we and did. you guys didn't didn't like. I know no, David no, didn't I like it. Very bad. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was good, but like it was also bad. I don't know. It's a popcorn movie. It's not it's not good. It's not smart. Popcorn movies can be good and smart. This yeah. one isn't. Way, way so many issues, so many plot holes, but I was not bored. Yeah. I was bored. Oh man. All right. Anyway, uh let's let's get into it. Um our first film is gonna be presented by Devin Shepard. And just so you guys know, I know you've all seen the title of the video, so you know what movies we're covering. Uh if you want to only watch the the movie that we're covering second, then in our description. We have actually been putting the time codes when each discussion begins for the past few episodes. So if you've only seen one movie, then you're welcome to look in there and see what you can jump to and just listen to that one. But we strongly encourage that you watch both movies and listen to the whole episode. But it's up to you. You're cool. Thank you for that, David. Yes, if you want to listen to a particular part of the episode, the time codes will be in the episode description. So our first film is presented to you by Devin Shepard. The Wrath of the Aeneas, punisher of men for crimes against the natural order, goddesses of vengeance and retribution in Greek and Roman mythology, summoned by victims seeking justice, pursuers and tormentors of the wicked until they atone for their crimes. Meredith's last relationship was abusive. Now finally freed, she is healing and learning not to absolve a man for his transgressions against her. And having learned that, it's time to get fucking laid. Meredith met Bruce at an art gallery opening and was instantly charmed. They've taken things seemingly slow, her even keeping his identity from her friends. But this weekend is the weekend for intimacy. Bruce is taking Meredith to his remote cabin in the woods. Up there, Bruce continues to charm Meredith with a rustic home, a well-cooked meal, records, art, and some wine. 
Despite all the romance, however, Meredith keeps hearing a voice to tell her to leave. No, really, there is a disembodied voice telling her to leave. And she starts to see a woman walking around outside. Is this cabin haunted? She confides her fears in Bruce, who brushes them off and starts to act a little aggressive. Fearful and triggered, Meredith asks if they can leave. She grabs the keys, but before she can reach the door, Bruce strangles her to her death. Bruce wakes up hours later, a gash in his head and Meredith's body gone. Where the fuck is she? As Bruce searches for her, he begins to hear and see things. Maybe this place is haunted? Nope, actually, it's the Furies, or the Araneus of Greek and Roman mythology that we learned of in the beginning. They are there to exact vengeance upon Bruce for the death of not only Meredith, but the many women who came before her. Bruce pleads, it's not him. It was a thing in his head that makes him do it. Actually, it's a thing in his head that does it. It's uncontrollable. The Furies aren't taking this. He must admit what he's done. They psychologically torture Bruce for what seems like hours as he wrestles with his own convictions, shown through experimental imagery and sequences. The film ends with Bruce unable to properly atone for his sins. Instead, he is marked to die, slashing apart his body with his own hands, as Meredith looks on. This is A Wounded Fawn, directed by Travis Stevens, written by Travis Stevens, as well as Nathan Vaudry. Yeah, so thanks for that intro, Devin. Uh, I'm really interested in something strange this movie kind of did. It seemed to switch perspectives. So I was wondering why you think they made the decision to switch main characters and perspective from Meredith to Bruce. Um, you know what? So we thought of this question. So I'm curious if it really does. Because we do start with Bruce and then we spend some time with Meredith and then we spend time with both of them. So almost to me, it's like introducing these two characters that then come together in the end. And in fact, like Travis does lay this out as a three act structure that he does that in a way to present both of them as main characters. I don't know if you guys have other insight. I got to tell you, I see the movie really at just two parts. Same. Okay, yeah. Maybe it, maybe it's two parts. No, no. I think I think he intended it to be a three-act structure. I just don't know if it was successful. I also don't really see the purpose of spending so much time as Meredith being the main character when it seems like this movie really wants to be a psychological thriller inside Bruce's head, more or less, which is probably the argument a lot of people would have or the way I think the movie makes sense because it doesn't really make sense if it's not in his head, um, unless it's a real like supernatural uh, occurrence, which, I mean, maybe you could argue that's what happened. I, yeah, I don't, I don't really think it works to switch perspectives. I think it's strange. It's kind of jarring. The movie, for me, is the best when it's really being surrealist and weird and leaves it open to interpretation of what's real. So when we kind of like settle down and it's just the back and forth between the two of them, I, I don't really see the chemistry or... I was kind of bored mm. in those scenes, personally. See I think for me, something that the the film presents as a question too, though, is like, and one that it does play around with, with this structure is who is the villain? I mean, if we're, if we're asking like, who is the protagonist, who is the villain? It is curious because when we are presented with, with the Furies at the end, and I know we want to talk about a little about their mythology, but the question does come up, like, are we meant to fear these women? And in that sense, like, if we're meant to fear them, are we with Bruce and are we condoning his actions? It, it it does play around a lot with like how the audience, how the audience feels about these characters and who, who deserves what happening in the film, if that makes sense. Hmm. I, I kind of want to answer that question right away. And I know it's a little earlier than we initially intended on getting into the Furies, which for those of you who don't know, the Furies are three sisters of Greek mythology. And they were born of the blood of Uranus, who was castrated by his son, Kronos, 
and the blood that fell from his genitals being tossed into the sea bore the three sisters, the Furies, who are vengeful spirits uh, or vengeful monsters of the gods who um, take revenge on sinners, mostly those who sin against their parents. But that is not always what they did. The most famous story of the Furies... In Orestes? Yes, in Orestes is when... I guess I'll tell the story. It's kind of interesting and quick. Agamemnon offers his daughter a sacrifice to appease the slighted god Artemis. In response, his wife uses this opportunity to kill him, claiming it was for vengeance for her daughter when really she wanted the crown for her and her lover. So then her son, Orestes, kills her because she killed his father. And then the gods are like, no, 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 you can't kill your parents. And they send the Furies after him. And they chase him around. They lash him with their whips. Uh, by the way, they're snake-haired and they have bat wings and they scream and shit. So they're chasing him around, lashing him. He can't sleep. They're screeching. So he goes to the Oracle in Athens and Athena holds a trial, which is one of the first trials in Greek mythology. And uh, she defends Orestes while the Furies are the prosecution. But he ends up being acquitted due to a hung jury. So then the Furies are like, well, fuck it. We're going to torture everyone in Athens. And Athena's <laughs> like, no, you won't. And then they have this long discussion. And eventually they rebrand themselves as the Semni or the Venerable Ones or the Kind Ones or become Three Sisters of Justice. And I think this is really important in this movie because we get the Furies, but it seems to be they're inflicting justice upon this serial killer. I, I see them as a good force. I don't see the conflict there, but I, I'd be interested in if you saw a different. No, from uh, this movie, way. no. But I think, like historically, when looking back at other stories that um, have the Furies in them, you know, after this happens, after the Furies come about, I think we do see them throughout other uh, mythologies where they are they they live in the underworld and they're working with Hades and Persephone in the underworld, which inherently. I think has this this darker fearful undertone and I think you know they are used as a fear tactic historically but I agree with you in the sense of this film they're not and it's kind of almost like taking a myth and presenting it and I guess there never really were villains in mythology because everyone there's kind of just like a balance of mm. good and bad that ends up happening eventually right well no no I I mean I, I kind of think they were vengeful because uh, people were afraid of them who actually believed they were afraid that if they did wrong, the Furies would come and unleash their mm -hmm. wrath upon them. The Furies weren't really a force of justice. They were a force of vengeance because you could argue like Orestes was correct in killing his mother. She tried to steal the crown, although his father wasn't great either. Yeah, the whole family's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They all just kill each other, which like the gods are not cool with. It is complex yeah. as to whether or not Orestes was justified or not. He, he may or may not have been. <laughs> yeah. And while all this is very interesting, we are here to analyze a wounded fawn and not the ancient mythology <laughs> that it's based on. <laughs> so I guess my question is now that we've we've had our, our history lesson, um, which I love because fucking we could talk about mythology yes. for, for forever. But why do you think they chose this mythology specifically to tell this story? And, and does it work for you? Well, I think it's really interesting that the Furies are depicted as vengeful women always attacking men who are sinners and they were born at least in the one story due to a man abusing his wife who was Gaia which is the sky abusing the earth and they're like a reflection of that pain oh maybe ha having them uh, born of a marital dispute in response to that means that they're kind of like finishing the business as they go out and uh, bring justice or vengeance to these men who abuse women because their mother was abused by their father. 
What I do find interesting is that, as you explained in the myth, originally the Furies actually do forgive him and accept the the justice, so to speak, and that doesn't happen in the movie. So he he's kind of rewriting the ending of the story, which I find interesting that that is specifically what is being most changed, is that these Furies will be unrelenting. They will not be convinced otherwise. And it is Athena specifically in the myth who convinces them to repent. And the red owl that he keeps seeing may or may not come from Greek mythology, but if it does, then an owl can be connected to Athena. So I, I, I keep going back and forth as to whether or not that connection is legitimate. Well, okay, so in the film, we do see the owl shroud being lifted and revealing a, another creature underneath the owl. So my interpretation of that with everything that's happening here is that it's not even really an owl. I mean, obviously, but like it's, it's presenting itself as an owl to Bruce. It's almost in a way deceiving Bruce that it is wisdom, that it is this greater, that it might even be Athena. It is the truth to him, but then thus revealing whatever that creepy little red thing is that is so awesome to be something <laughs> much more sinister. Okay. So that creepy red thing is his nervous system. And I think that you're actually, you're making me uh, churn a little bit. Maybe I am kind of agreeing with David now that the Red Owl is a representation of Athena, but it's like a false one. Right. Right. Because he claims that it's like this deep-seated wisdom that's overtaking him, but really it's him being unable to overcome his innermost impulses, which would be your nervous system, which is actually in charge of sending impulses through your body. Yeah. 100% agree with that. And yeah, just to clarify what I was saying, yes, that it is presenting itself to him as the wisdom, like you said, presenting itself as the owl. But again, as we see, it unsheathes itself as his nervous system. Now that you pointed it out, that makes more sense. I was like, oh, this creepy little creature. I love it. Wow. Yeah. Actually, I think, David, I think uh, between you and Devin, you kind of convinced me that the owl is a representation of Athena, but a false one. Virtual high five, David. High five. I'm still not convinced myself, by the way. <laughs> false. It's false. Because there's also the, the weapon he uses is not Greek, so he's not exclusively Greek imagery. That weapon is called, I'm going to butcher this, it's called a bagnak. It's uh, an assassin's tool made in India. It was made to look like a tiger attack someone so that it wouldn't be traced back to a person. Yeah, but Travis Stevens literally said it just looked cool. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, he's just like, oh. oh, it's a cool weapon, which it is. And, you know, yeah, not everything yeah. has to be. But it is worth noting that not necessarily everything in this movie is Greek specifically. Yeah. And it, it could be argued that maybe Bruce's imagery is not Greek, but it's the Greek forces that he triggers because he's like kind of some pretentious art dude who's like, I'm going to dip my toes in this culture and this culture and this culture and this culture and this culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. We have to look at Bruce as the character as these are, you know, things that he envisions and he is a, a well-trained art collector, supposedly. We never know. He's an unreliable narrator, you know? He's very unreliable, yes. But I think we're onto something. He is like a surface level character in his dealings with things. Like he assumes that this bird that's telling him what to do is like this crazy, very interesting deep wisdom when really it's just his bird brain and he's like a sadistic scumbag you know who can't overcome his baser yeah. impulses or doesn't want to or doesn't want to i think we'll get more into that in comparisons but i did want to ask you guys uh what you think happened in the end of the movie because i was actually a little bit confused you see he like starts cutting himself with the weapon 
and Meredith is standing over and revealing like all the glittery face and whatnot. And then there's this abrupt cut seemingly back to reality. And Meredith is still there in a much less interesting robe. And it's just like, fuck you. And he's still just cutting himself. All the music cuts out. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> is she alive? I'm confused. I I personally don't think that she's alive. I, I do think that she, she did die. I mean, the way that I want to interpret the film is that she did call upon the Furies. I think the importance of cutting back to her is for us to to understand that th this was Meredith, that, you know, she did bring the Furies, that was her technically under the mask. Like, they didn't just come and this wasn't just like a godly vengeance. Like, she took the power in herself to to make this happen. Yeah, whether or not she died, I, I believe that she died because I think in order to call upon them, it would make sense. Though they technically are there beforehand. Either way... I don't really care if she's dead or not, I guess. I just like that it gave her her power at the end. <laughs> so you think she called upon him and it wasn't Kate Horna who was the first victim? Because she kind of shows up. No, that's a good question. Maybe it's all three of them. Or even yeah. Lenora, who... It turns out there's a real person named Lenora Carrington, and I learned that, and I'm just like, what? Wait, I, who? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean the woman at the beginning who was quoted? Yeah. Yeah, she's a surrealist. Travis Stevens, like, um, there's some interesting articles out there, and I don't really want to, like, dive into too many of them because we could spend hours, but Travis Stevens has so many references to different yeah. artists um, that talk about the Furies and mythology and, and music. There's there's so many artistic references in here. I, a friend of mine on Twitter even pointed out, this outfit is from this painting. Like, literally so many details. Yeah, yeah, he did a lot, a lot of research. So definitely everything we're talking about, Travis Stevens is well aware of because he looked into this a lot. Yeah, the only thing I can think with the ending, like it is adding a different layer of reality, but it still doesn't feel like the base reality. And that's why I think I was a bit confused by it. It's also just Meredith. So were Kate and Lenora really there? Was it just Meredith mm. orchestrating everything? That's v a good very, point. Very strange. I don't know how I feel about it. Um. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the movie presents that as the solution, but it just, when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. In yeah. terms of, yeah. Like her actually orchestrating as, like operating as a fury would and making him go insane, you know, with the metaphorical lashes and screeching, like his own internal turmoil. But Right, because we do see him hurting himself at the end. So no matter what, like that is the thing that can be real yeah and and maybe maybe in a way by showing that he's hurting himself and if she really didn't die and it really was her and there wasn't any furies and she's just enacting the psychological torture on him then if he were to accept that psychological torture it's almost his acceptance of that he's done something wrong and there's something is to atone for otherwise he wouldn't submit himself into this fantasy well, I, I yeah. agree with that because he argues that it's not his fault and he's not in control throughout the entire film mm -hmm. a bunch of times. So he knows that he's doing wrong. It's uh, just a question of like, can he control himself and how much does he care? Because when they get him all fucked up and they're asking him questions, it kind of seems like he pretends to care more than he actually cares. He he sees himself as a victim throughout. And I, I, I know we want to talk about this in the comparisons, but I, just because we're on it now. Yeah. He, he does see himself as a victim to this thing in his head, to the red owl, but also to life. He says, you know, I've seen so many worse things out there. And he, in comparison to like him murdering these women, like he's seen bad things. It's not just like they've had bad things happen to them, i.e. him murdering them. He's gone through so much. 
and there's so much out there that makes him tortured. And I think at the end too, Meredith as as the Fury says that he hates women because he doesn't have their power, their beauty and their life. Like he's living this tortured life of jealousy. And he's like, oh, you understand me finally. Yes, they torture me so much because I don't have what they have. He forever paints himself as the victim. It doesn't stop him from masturbating in the sink after he kills them though. <laughs> and doing it in the sink is just fucking gross. Like, come on, do it in the bathroom, man. At least the bathroom sink. Like, no kink shaming. <laughs> Jerking off in the sink? Nah, dude, other people eat out of that. That's gross. Who else is there? Well, she she ate what he cooked out of that sink. He just kills her. Yeah, he just kills her. Doesn't matter to her. Well, I mean, she ate out of that sink before. <laughs> uh, this is a good point to move on to our second film. David, why don't you give us the rundown on that movie? A car on a rainy dark road. Tess sits outside her Airbnb trying to get in contact with the host. There's no key. When a light turns on and a man opens the door. This man, Keith, if that is his real name, tells her that they must have double booked the Airbnb and now we're in this awkward situation together, but you might as well come in out of the rain, right? Over the course of the night, Tess warms up to Keith. His license checks out, he's almost too polite. He demands that they clean the bed sheets so she'd be more comfortable sleeping in the bed while he takes the couch. Unfortunately, there is something deeper happening here, and it's not Keith. Now the next day, Tess discovers a secret hallway in the basement leading to what looks like a dungeon of some sort. Freaks, Tess runs to Keith and demands they leave now, but he's a dude, he's gotta see this for himself. Thus luring Tess even deeper because of course there'd be some secret passage within the secret passage leading to an endless maze of narrow caverns. And some sort of monster who kills Keith, Justin Long drives down a West Coast highway singing 1960s hits and living the dream life. The character's name is AJ, but when you're sitting in the theater and this very abrupt cut happens, you will double take and go, is that Justin Long? AJ receives a life-changing phone call. It turns out that he's a television producer and his pilot is not going forward as he's been accused of raping an actress. He's furious, ridden with debt, he may have to sell his house through all the legal expenses, so he goes to liquidate some assets, i.e. this little Airbnb he owns and pays zero attention to in Brightmoor, Detroit. Oh shit. As expected, AJ finds the dungeon and then the caves. Armed only with a knife and a tape measure, he blunders in measuring the square footage in case it raises the property's value. So he too encounters the monster, of course, and is thrown into a pit with Tess. Still alive, thank god. She explains to AJ, all the monster wants is for him to be her baby. He's uh, not very good at submission though, and the mother takes him away for breastfeeding. Uh, Tess uses a distraction to get out and get help. A homeless man living on the block, Andre, explains that the mother comes out at night. There was a serial rapist living in the house, probably still there, and the mother is what results when you cross the gene pool too many times. Uh, when the cops ignore her, Tess goes back in to save AJ herself. She doesn't know that he's a rapist. Sorry, alleged rapist. He's gone through his own tribulations, encountering the serial killer within the cave, seeing the sad and miserable life he's led, and watching this older man kill himself. Now, AJ wants to make things right to be better. Until the big finale, when the mother is chasing Tess and AJ up a water tower, and he figures he can get past her with a distraction, which means pushing Tess off the fucking water tower. Uh, mother leaps and saves Tess, cushioning the fall. AJ rushes in to apologize and explain how his hand slipped, but of course Mother is alive too and jumps up and crushes AJ's skull. Then Tess takes out the Mother and leaves Barbary Street for good. Hmm, Barbary Street. 
So that makes her Barbarian. Written and directed by Zach Krager with cinematography by Zach Cooperstein. Nice intro, bro. Thank you. I spoke fast because I wrote a lot. Wow. You you already <laughs> like have in there. So I have so many questions off of that. Uh, but we, <laughs> I guess I, I want to start where we started on the last one because this film has a similar structure to A Wounded Fawn in that there is a protagonist swap. We go from Tess to AJ. So Rob, why do you think they did that for this film? Well, unlike the last film, I actually think the perspective change works a lot because this movie is concerned with the relationship between men in power and the women they misuse. So by showing a guy and a girl dealing with that problem on either end of the spectrum, we can explore the current political spectrum of Me Too. And I think Justin Long's character is like the middle ground guy in the film industry rather than like the Harvey Weinstein who would be like Frank. Mm. Frank's the guy who was raping all the women and having the inbred children and all that gross stuff. Whereas Justin Long's character, AJ, would be the guy who uh, transgressed once or twice and is like, oh, I messed up. It wasn't my fault. At least it's not systemic and blah, blah, blah. So I think uh, it, it is kind of an interesting way of like using a horror film to kind of explore those topics. So in that regard, I, th I think it makes a lot of sense to break character and give us both perspectives. And how, I'm sorry, and how does Tess's beginning fit into that perspective? Uh, so, I mean, T Tess is obviously important for the plot, but I think she represents uh, like an actress in the film industry who is stuck in the scenario this other guy has put her in. And then hmm. not only is he like a perpetrator as well, he can be like, well, I didn't build the system and the system being the whole house, but he's hmm. perpetrating it. And he actually throws her back to the system at the end of the movie. It's like, hmm. I need to save myself. Sorry, I can't change the way things are. And he tosses her off. Yeah, I, I agree with that in the, in the fact that is this plot line that they present with AJ. But I would argue that with the plot line that they're presenting with Tess and with Bill Skarsgård at the beginning, because I already forgot his fucking name, and then also with Frank, is that this is even more beyond just Hollywood. I mean, this is, you know, it's systematic, but it's systematic in social and in culture as well. I mean, we see that when Tess comes to the cops, they don't help her. It's like an inherent, um, oh, crazy woman talking to us, like whatever, we're just going to leave that be men, men have the right of way there. It's, 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 it's sorry, I'm rambling now. Uh, but yeah, I think it's bigger than just the Hollywood system, which I think is the importance of, of Tess's storyline. So David, in your summary, you ended with that makes her barbarian. So was your takeaway that as she's called mother, the filmmakers call her mother, I don't think she necessarily has that name in the film, I forget, but um, you saw her as the barbarian? I think so. I mean, they do live on Barbary Street, which is amazing. So it would have to be either the mother or Frank, I think, because they're the ones who come from Barbary Street. Or Andre, I guess, uh, the, the homeless man. Wow, left field. I mean, those are the people who live on Barbary Street. But it's not called Barbarians, it's called Barbarian. <laughs> so. <laughs> Rob, did you also take away that the mother was the Barbarian? Uh, I think seeing Frank as Barbarian is probably a better uh, interpretation. But I don't know. I think either way, they both live like Barbarians. He, he has a Barbarian lifestyle, though, where he just subjugates everyone around him. 
I think that's he does. That's a good but way. She of was literally it. born there. Yeah, and and the title isn't the Barbarian. It's just Barbarian. So it could be both of them, and it's interesting. And I think what the film does is is present these many different viewpoints as we were showing, and that the characters, you know, we see them change so often, and our our relationship to them change so often. Whether or not the mother is the barbarian, I think is questionable. I think we do end up sympathizing with her as we learn more and more throughout the film. But no matter what, she is the quote unquote main monster, <laughs> which I kind of struggle saying that because it's not her choice to be the monster. And Frank created this this monster. She, she's the enforcer. She's the Darth Vader where Frank is the Darth Sidious. Oh, I think that's... Mm, oh, I have... Mm, I don't want to go too far into Star Wars, but I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he he's the big 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 bad who you barely see and she's the one who's actually doing everything. See, I would call her even though there's a more evil force behind her. I would her. call her Frankenstein's monster and I would call Frank Dr. Frankenstein. Ooh. Hmm. Ooh. I think that's who. His name is Frank. That His name sense. is Frank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's actually probably what they were going for. I like for. that a lot, actually. Yeah, I think she's kind of like the bride of Frankenstein, sort of. It's like Frankenstein's that. monster and that. his bride, because mm. he was like not only creating... <laughs> well, he was creating them, then he was sleeping with them and creating more until it became... Uh, big mama yeah it uh, is it is the bride and the monster at the same time because it's it's his daughter and his lover yes yeah yeah and his granddaughter granddaughter. shouldn't it be called the bride of frankenstein's monster (laughs) anyway i guess my issue with the film is that like while we are presented with this creature that we do end up like understanding and, and empathizing with a little bit more we are still meant to to fear the mother up to well pretty much the entire film until the end we are meant to fear her yeah but yeah, i think that makes her a better uh movie monster because the best movie monsters we end up sympathizing with like king kong uh the creature for 20 million miles from earth most of those good monsters frankenstein's monster we, yeah frankenstein's monster we we sympathize with them but <laughs> they're not made for this world they can't function in it and because of that disconnect with society, they end up doing villainous things, even though their intentions are not evil. And I think mm-hmm. that makes, I know they call her the mother, but she actually doesn't have any children. But they must call her that because she's not the barbarian. Another reason. I wonder if she does have any actual children. I mean, she is called the mother and she does seem to have this maternal instinct that she's watching maternal videos. Like it, it, it might be possible that she has children who died and didn't make it. That's possible. But I don't think Frank, uh, he can barely reach the nightstand. I don't think he ain't pumping. Yeah. Yeah. But he, that's not how he always was. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I got the feeling she'd never had kids. That's why she wants to be a mother so badly. And she mothers everyone else. She also has the ability of ripping people's arms off with brute strength. So Frank hitting that maybe, <laughs> I, I, right. younger, I don't know. I, I don't even want to think about it. But I would assume she's not a mother. She's emulating the only person she knew other than Frank and what she's seen on TV, I guess. That's an interesting point, Rob, that that's the only person that she knew and probably the only person that like gave her any sort of love. But it does instill this this thought in me that like how women are presented as like, is this the only reason that she is meant to live is to become a mother? And it, when looking at empathizing and, and looking at the monster, like I think it is all about looking at what their their motive is, is that allows us to question whether or not they are a monster whether or not they are a villain whether or not we should empathize and the mother's motive is simply to have children 
And in that sense, it, it becomes really complicated for me because it's like, okay, is that Kreger? Is he saying that women, that that is an innate thing in them and that they need to become a mother? Because then that becomes dicey. Or is he saying that Frank, as a representation of patriarchy, not men, instills that in mother and makes that her her motive and her only reason for living, essentially. Well, I I would argue that the mother character is representing the uh, the monsters that patriarchy might make of otherwise good people and how uh, women today need to look towards them. I think that might be kind of what he was going for. As far as her only going towards motherhood, I think a lot of what's happened is uh, her brain function is diminished due to the lack of school, the environment, the incest and all that. So she's reverting kind of back to like basic instincts and like mothering is an instinct in all animals and in people. But so I, I don't see a conflict. Well, yeah. And and speaking as a woman, I guess I can, I can speak a little more on that. Is that like, yeah, that's there, but you know, humans are evolved and women have evolved and people have evolved that like Mm, an instinct yes but one that's not necessarily like it's not the be all end all like it's it, it there has to be a reason for it it's not just like a not everyone has that motherly instinct not everyone like wants to become a mother not everyone like has that within them and yeah yeah i mean it, i, I yeah. agree yeah. that um you know people have evolved not evolved but they've developed enough to kind of forego their baser instincts in pursuit of more grand intellectual interests and desires, which I, I think actually it does harken back to the previous movie. It's a positive point in humans to pursue higher order functions rather than regressing to their baser order um, desires and instincts like what's-his-face Bruce did with his bird brain and the red owl, for instance. So I agree with both of you. Um but I don't necessarily think it needs to be about larger society in here. I think it's about her very limited perspective of what she's seen. She's grown up in these caves. She has never left the street. She's known a handful of people. She's known Frank, who is a rapist. She's known his victims, probably. They're probably unrelated victims who she's just seen being tortured. And her mother, who he may have kept around to raise her and would probably be the only thing she's seen. And she's seen that mother on the television. This is the only positive person that she may have ever met, assuming it was positive. So I think it makes sense that that would be what she would emulate, that that is the one thing that she's going to latch on to, her one chance at a life. Yeah. Um, and she hasn't been given the scope to imagine any wider opportunities. Uh, I want to comment on what you were saying, because uh, now that I'm thinking of it, I think it's in there in the movie. He has these videotapes around his training tools. That's kind of his schooling yeah. for his daughter, mothers in the future to take care of their progressive generations. So she's actually, it's not just instinctual. She's actually been taught to do this, whether or not he intended to, to have offspring with her because they had these videotapes around for the express purpose of, uh, creating uh, motherly characteristics in his offspring to take care of future generations. Look, I agree. I think that's a great, great summary of like what's presented in the film in a, in a very, in a very succinct way of th this character and then life. While we can say that that is the story and from the perspective of the character, that all makes sense. But I feel like it is important to talk about what, the, what these represent and how, the, how they're representing them. Yes. And I think I, it's a representation of class. Uh, I think I think it's uh, yeah, it's a reputation of uh, sexism and class. Um, but I think if we look at it as like kind of a microcosm for society, he's kind of saying that 
the way the patriarchy or whatever instills these like baseline kind of motherly values within its offspring, which are a product of misogyny and sexism and violence against women, we are kind of getting a he, he does like a literal monstrosity, but it's like a parody of women as they could be, which is presented through like Tess, for instance, you know, someone who's uh, very competent and likable and a good, well-rounded character. Instead, we get a very one-dimensional kind of product rather than a fully realized person. And what he's doing is within this house creating a a parody of the real world, although it, it is very closely linked in some ways, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. I mean, what I was getting at with it being this very limited purview, I think that the movie is called Barbarian. Uh, it is set on Barbary Street. So aside from Barbarian referring to the word Barbarian, it is also referring to the location of the movie. Where is it set? It's set in Brightmoor, Detroit which is a real place that is a real district in Detroit. Um, I don't live there. I've never been there. But based on my research, it used to be this very affluent uh, white community. And then desegregation happened and black people started moving in and white people fled. They, they just ran out. They're like, no, nope, the neighborhood's going to hell is literally a line in the movie. And they all left. Oh, wow. And... The government ignored it. Uh, crime rose, poverty rose, ever, and there's just this mass abandonment. And if you go there, then you will uh, allegedly, according to what I've been reading, that you will see streets like Barbary Street. That there are these places where there are just abandoned house after abandoned house after abandoned house, where nature is taking over. It's really fucked up, and <laughs> like. This movie is saying a lot about class and race in addition to the gender dynamics, and I think that it is largely talking about gender dynamics within class as well. And the mother is a woman who was raised with nothing. Yeah, so I think the two are definitely interrelated, and I think the house itself becomes a microcosm of both uh, patriarchy and uh, systemic oppression. That being said, I am wondering how you think this interrelates with the ability of Frank and uh, to a lesser extent, AJ being able to get away with their crimes. Well, AJ doesn't get away with it. Yes. Is what I would say. AJ doesn't get away with it, but Frank does. It's definitely a lesser extent for AJ. Which, I mean, AJ doesn't deserve to get away with it. He's a fucking rapist. Frank is a serial rapist. Frank, I mean, well, based on what we know about people, it's quite likely AJ has done that before. But that is making assumptions. Yeah, I think the difference is that AJ's victim is a, a famous actress. And Frank's victims are people who live in Brightmoor. Hmm. As we see throughout the movie repeatedly, the cops don't give a shit about Brightmoor. I was reading some Reddit posts about it, about Detroit, and the people from Detroit said the most unrealistic thing in the movie is that the cops actually show up. <laughs> That's horrid. <laughs> That's horrid. I'm like, okay, so it's worse. All That's right. Funny. Right. But he, he, but Frank does start this before the, the quote neighborhood went to shit. That's horrid. Um, during. Yeah. yeah. But as, also at that time, like, was anyone going to believe a woman did what the idea of what rape was? I mean, that, that it's a completely different time, you know, like you could get away with so much more by just being a man and no one believing you when you were a woman. It's weird. Cause Frank does very little to hide his crimes. Like, 
you look at that flashback, the first time I watched the movie, I was like, oh, this flashback's kind of superfluous. And then watching it again, I'm like, this flashback is fucking weird. Because he goes into the store and buys a bunch of baby things, and the woman there is like, oh, uh, what hospital are you going to use? Because it's a home birth. Oh, okay, you have a midwife? No, I'm doing it myself. And every time she's like, what? That's weird. Why are you doing this way? But she doesn't, like, do anything. Like, it's obvious that there is something weird going on, but she doesn't do anything. Then he goes, he, he does the thing where he stalks a woman and prepares to kidnap her, wearing a suit that has a fake name on it. Then he goes and talks to his uh, neighborhood's going-to-hell neighbor. And while he's having that conversation, he's literally still wearing the suit with the fake name. Mm-hmm. Like, how the fuck did he get away with this? It is ridiculous. This is like American psycho level. It is just out there. Yeah, Yeah, but people also aren't looking for this at that time. This was like pre-monsters. This was during the time that everything is kind of like, like, this wasn't something that like people expected. This was before, or no, this was the 80s. Yeah, so this is right during the time when everything's starting to, to flip over. I don't know why I was thinking it was the 50s, maybe because it was so colorful and pretty, but yeah, whatever. It's Reagan. Reagan era. Yeah, it's Reagan era. Oh, we almost got through it. Uh, no. They, Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> Always Reagan era. They, they Reagan. They mentioned They name drop yeah, they do. in the movie. <laughs> and there's a lot of reasons why. But yeah, and it, it is interesting because like obviously Andre, the homeless man, like he knows the story of Frank. Like it, it's it's a well-known thing. They, they know what he's done yep. and yet he's still there. Like they're not doing anything about it. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It being an open secret, I think, plays into the thematic elements of the movie. Like uh, again, to drop yep. Harvey Weinstein, uh, it was an open secret all the stuff he was doing. Like there are yeah. quotes of w- of actresses coming to their house, their their room on a boat, and then he's in there masturbating, and they're like, "Oh!" And they tell people, and they're like, "Oh, that's just Harvey." And it's like, "What? That's gross." Yeah, and that, no, I think that's a really interesting comparison because then it compares back to like, yeah, it's it's systematic. Like we know that, that people do these things, and yet we choose to turn a blind eye to it. And I think going back to what we were talking about in the beginning that it's not just hollywood it it happens in in real life outside of this industry it is a bigger issue right but also to your point of it being uh of the time he was able to get away rather than now it seems like the movie is stating not only is it harder to get away with these things because we're looking for it but also through pursuing those who have perpetrated currently we might dig up bigger things in the past because you could argue like by aj getting there she's able to get away and then thus hopefully shed light on this horrible systemic problem. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that is going all the way back and does answer the question that that David originally asked is why does one get away with it when the other one doesn't? Yeah, that's fascinating. There's this moment where AJ and Frank meet, which is such a fascinating scene. Mm-hmm. And AJ finds the tapes that Frank has. <laughs> i watching it this time, it kind of made me laugh. The, the women are labeled like, you know, when like you're you're dating and you like put people on your phone as bar redhead, guy I met at Louis. Yeah, and those are all the God. tapes. It's gas station redhead. And so AJ plays one of them and he turns to Frank. He's like, oh my God. And like, then he's horrid. Like up to that point though, he's Frank's buddy. He thinks Frank's a victim. He's wor- Well, he's not really worried about Frank because he puts himself first. But up until that point, AJ watches the tape and sees Frank as a horror. So what was, knowing that like AJ is also a rapist, what was your interpretation of that? Mm. Th- that scene in that moment? AJ is a rapist, but he doesn't think of himself as a rapist. He's also yeah. not a kidnapper murderer like Frank is. So there's levels to these acts, heinous as they are. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Even just with murder, there's like a difference between shooting somebody and torturing them to death, etc. So, sure, but we also don't know what's on that tape. 
we hear violence, but we don't know we if don't. it's uh, the sexual assault or the murder. And mm. just just to say what I thought real fast, it, it is it is showing this this interesting interpretation of how like the definition of rape has changed over the years. We do see AJ. I almost said Justin. AJ's character AJ telling his friend like, yeah, she just needed some convincing. I coerced her essentially, but not admitting that it was rape because his view of rape is not that. His view of rape is what Frank does on that tape, supposedly, that is violent, that is aggressive. Yes, because I agree with you, Rob, like definitely Frank's level appears to be significantly worse than AJ's. Totally. But I think that AJ also doesn't seem to recognize that what he's doing is a smaller scale version of what Frank is doing, that there is not that recognition, at least not in that moment. Maybe later, arguably. Mm. But in that moment, there is not that recognition. Yeah. I, I also wonder if, like, you know, it's a high octane situation. So it's hard for him to have kind of like the character moment there. But I think as an audience, we are getting that recognition at that point. And that's why I think it's a good scene. Yeah, definitely. So I think this is a good place to compare the two films because as we talk about kind of our overarching theme of how the uh, zeitgeist of Me Too has kind of changed the ability of uh, abusers to get away with it or whatnot. What does this say about some of the characters like AJ or Bruce, or I mean, I guess even Frank, whether or not we can potentially forgive them as they sort of uh, repent in a way? Yeah, I think both of these films explore that, whether or not these people are, are right to forgive. And I think David was getting onto something in the beginning when talking about a wounded fawn is that the Furies do seem kind of relentless in that they aren't going to forgive Bruce. But like I said, Bruce never actually owns up to doing anything wrong, at least not to the point where we believe that he's going to change anything. And I think that's personified also in Barbarian with with AJ's character. I mean, we do have this, it's, it's a rather hilarious moment, but a, a pretty good one where they're all sitting around the fire with Andre and we kind of get this this false redemption moment with AJ where the camera slowly zooms in on his face. And he's like, maybe I am a bad person or maybe I'm a good person who just does a bad thing. And then, of course, we see him throw her off the water tower. So he is not, in fact, a good person and does not actually redeem himself. Yeah, I, I, I love the false redemption. Uh, I, I completely fell for it the first time and thought they were going to give him a redemption arc and wasn't sure how I felt about it. Um, and yeah. I'm glad that they then take that away in terms of bruce it's interesting because i feel like he does recognize that he's evil but he then dissociates and he says that's not really me that's the red owl and yeah we, we can debate whether or not we think the red owl is real whether it's actually not part of him or if it is him which i i think it isn't but <laughs> i think it's a really interesting question to ask how full of shit both these characters are and i think for me um aj attempts to repent for it by denying at first and then trying to justify in that it was a mistake i would never do it again he does sort of own that he did it but he doesn't exactly whereas bruce mm -hmm. goes further and he explains that it was not under his control and in doing so he creates kind of an artistic representation of his bird brain and his willingness to exploit and abuse women through the red owl but as we discussed earlier, if you view the Red Owl as a false interpretation of Athena, you might be commenting that some people have argued the, uh, the systemic exploitation is an, an expression of high art, and therefore it's justified. 
And I think people do that in Me Too when they say, well, yes, he might have abused all these women, but it was a really good fucking movie. People do say that about things. What is it? Last Tango in Paris or even uh, Kubrick's treatment of... Shelley Duvall. Yes. So, And I think this movie, that Mm. movie is also commenting on that aspect. Separating the art from the artist. Right. And I, I would argue that both films are saying that we shouldn't forgive these perpetrators. Yeah, that's really interesting. So then in that sense, so the film of Wounded Fawn would then be arguing we shouldn't separate the art from the artist. I don't... I, because I don't, it is a part of themselves that they put the blame upon. No, I, I wouldn't say follow. that. <laughs> I would say that there are expressions of high art that use their artistic status to justify the abuses that are either depicted or within mm, the creation. Sorry, what what is what is Bruce's art cuz he's an art collector, but what what is his art that you're referring to? The creation of the red owl and the artistic visions that he he has. Yes. Is that art? I would say that he's considering them art. He collects these women and adds them to his collection. Yes. I think that's what they're going for. Which is interesting because he does, and I always wondered why he he does this. He he goes to the um, buried oil cans with the previous victims in them, and he digs them up, which is a task. And yeah, kind of like opens them up and looks at them like they are his his collection. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and he would probably use them as, as like they're kind of the fuel, like the materials for his artistic collection. But that's why they're in like oil cans, like as if they're needed to create his canvas which is the red owl mm. or whatever part of his collection. So so yeah, so bringing it back to to the point of comparison, it's interesting cuz I think what these films present in that sense in terms of like are they pieces of shit? Should we empathize with them? Do they deserve what happens? Do they atone? It it comes back to a question of like is this in their nature? And what I'm getting from Rob's interpretation, which I think is fascinating, is that maybe it's not nature for Bruce, maybe it's more this artistic need and not necessarily like a systematic and and, and for for aj and for frank it's more systematic and also maybe not nature systematic I'm, i'm curious how those combine i think it's a choice i don't i think he may have a nature but that doesn't mean that he needs to make the same choices that he makes um of course he's claiming it's not a choice but who bruce that bruce is claiming that he doesn't have a choice but i I mean, I'm on the side that he's full of shit. I think they're both full of shit. For AJ, the evidence to me that makes it like you're questioning it the whole time. But then at the end, after he throws Tess off the tower, then he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. My hand slipped, like immediately just gaslighting and changing the narrative. And we just we we see in real time that this is what he does. He immediately is taking this narrative and twisting it. And I think that we can reasonably conclude that the point is that that's exactly what he's been doing about this rape scandal, that everything he said is complete bullshit and we should not trust his account of things at all. Yeah. Yeah. And when he says like, oh, she came around, he 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 fucking raped her. And in terms of Bruce, the reason I think he's full of shit, this one's a little more subtle. There's a moment toward the end of the movie when Meredith asks him if he was kissing her or if it was the red owl. And he says, no, that was me. The red owl can't be intimate. And then earlier in the movie, right after he kills her, there's a moment. We don't know exactly what he's about to do. It seems like he might be about to rape the body or at least be intimate with it in some way. And in that moment, he says... With like a big smile, he's like, this is my favorite part. But now he's telling us that the red owl can't be intimate. 
So that moment was Bruce by his own account. He's contradicting himself. If you see that moment as intimate. Yeah, which I think the implication yeah. is that he was going to be intimate in some way. I, I, I think that hmm. his actions are definitely sexualized because he's attacking women specifically. Mm. Well, he does masturbate to it afterwards. So there is definitely a sexual angle. Yeah. yeah. And uh, since the red owl can't be intimate, I, I would assume that extends to intimate, being intimate within with yourself. Yeah. And in terms of choices, I don't forgive AJ or Frank or anything because I agree. Like we see them make the choice because we know that they know that it's bad. Yeah. With Bruce, he, he does know that it's bad because he tells people that like he tries to fight it to cover his own ass. But like we don't actually see him try to fight it, you know? Mm. Yeah, we see him struggle a little whether bit. Whether or not that's a weakness in the filmmaking or if it's like or that's what it's presenting his character. He as. does reject the red owl once near the beginning when he tries not to kill Meredith, but then he still does. I mean, ultimately if he knows he can't control himself, then why is he taking her on a date? Like he he knows this is where it's going. Even if he says he doesn't, he knows this is where it's going. He he is not doing much to control himself. He also sees it as kind of like an act of creation, you know, it's like serial killers are often uh, compared with like artists, you know, and like the way they do things. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, like the Black Dahlia, which I think is based on that. And um, oh, I forget that guy's name, but the fucking creepy surrealist. Salvador Dali? The guy who they think did the Black Dahlia and it was inspired by surrealism. Anyway, continue. So Meredith says that she wrote her thesis on the myth of the muse and the erasure of the female artist. So, of course, the muse is this Greek idea. It's these sort of female spirits that inspire art. I, I, it's, it's cool that that is what she said, because that relates directly to everything. I mean, that's basically like the movie is a thesis on the myth of the muse and the erasure of the female artist. In this case, if the red owl is Bruce's muse, then he is literally using it to murder female artists <laughs> kate and meredith who both also work in museum culture and are on that art scene and mm. he, he's literally erasing them i love that yeah, yeah. I, I do have to disagree the muses are the women's he's killing and the red the red owl is the art piece and so you're saying that the art is given as the excuse for the suffering uh, in terms no. of like the suffering of the muses well yeah the excuse, the excuse is, the, is art. the art the yeah he creates the suffering and then he claims it's for a high art I mean, I haven't read Meredith's paper, but it sounds like her idea was probably that the the muse is inherently a sexist and violent idea that is objectifying women and making men into artists instead and refusing to allow women to be. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and that's, that's a really fascinating thing that's explored. So how does the post-Me Too era present itself through these male characters i mean we talked about this a little bit but i just want to explore it a little bit more so, sorry what do you mean okay so more more or less you're, you're asking what what these films are saying about the uh post me too experience or the me too experience generally since they're presented by male filmmakers and they are kind of like male-centric characters so what does that say yeah yeah the male experience in the post me too oh, okay okay yeah. okay okay yeah, I mean, of that, I, I that we can finally talk about Keith a bit. <laughs> Keith is like presented at that point. We are in Tess's perspective, so we're we're going with Tess into Keith, and they cast Bill Skarsgård, who is Pennywise. I didn't recognize him, but still, they the film makes you constantly question everything that he's doing. Everything feels like a trap. 
He's being too polite. He's he's forcing her into situations, whether he intends to or not. Like he, he's ignoring her, saying like, "No, I'm fine to sleep on the couch." He's like, "No, we're gonna do the fucking laundry." <laughs> and he, he's he's almost overcorrecting so much. You're like, "This is a trap." Um, up until the point when he goes into the passageway and calls out, like, "Help, help!" And the first time I saw it, the moment that happened, I'm like, "That's a trap." He's, he's luring you down there. That's a trap. Don't go down there. <laughs> but then when you watch it again, you, you realize that, I mean, he's still a bit pompous. He's definitely pompous. He's definitely, like, got these stereotypical male-female relationships in mind where the man has to take care of the woman. And, oh, I've got to see this for myself. I can go down there. He's not having the same red flags flaring for him at every moment. But he is seemingly meaning well and a lot of his overcorrecting is almost like he's just so worried about offending her and freaking her out that he is freaking her out by rambling and going too hard and like i promise i'm not a danger i don't know does that make sense i'm glad you're mentioning the keith character because uh, he's the first victim of the movie also so yeah, I on I think in a, in a wider way we're kind of seeing how both men and women are negatively affected by this uh, patriarchal sexist machine of industry I guess yeah yeah to, if you want to point it that way that's definitely the viewpoint of the movie uh, I mean I I have different viewpoints of some of the stuff but uh, specifically in the Me Too stuff like in the sexual exploitation of people and whatnot yes we see how it negatively affects both. Well, well, good men and women as well. So I think that's interesting. It is kind of cool to see like a male perspective of Me Too because it seems like a lot of the films coming out in recent years have been female-centric, which we need. So it's good to see both sides. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that in the point of like, we see the male perspective here, whether or not I agree with it being a negative one. But yeah, I think something that, that we should point out is that both these films were written and directed by men. It is about the male perspective of a Me Too movement. And I think it is important to, yes, we need to give the stage to women at this time, obviously, and we need to listen to them. But now we're seeing a lot of films and a lot of art being a response to what we've listened to from women, which is showing a conversation. And I kind of see that like these films are in addition to that conversation of the male perspective now, because no, I don't think that it's not feminist to ignore the male reaction to the Me Too movement. Men were affected. Women are obviously the victims here, but like we should talk about how the patriarchy affects the men too. Like that is the feminist way to look at how everyone is affected. And so I think it is interesting that we get the the response through these male characters of these films. How have men changed now? Yeah. And I think Keith, like David, you hit the nail on the head. Like he overcorrects so much. We don't trust him. And uh, you see that kind of like archetyped in a lot of guys nowadays that it feels like they're like overcompensating for the perceived sins of the past, like the sins of their fathers, you know, in generational speak. He just wants a glass of wine, but he waits for her to get out of the shower so he can go on a whole monologue about he waited so that she would know he's definitely not drugging her. Yeah, but it's also like, but that scene also shows like it's him having listened to the experience of women and him adjusting his behavior in order to, to, yeah, it's changing his behavior, which we don't see with AJ. And I think that moment that the audience sees with AJ, like the the false redemption 
moment, we see ourselves in this like, oh, well, I would do this or I would I would agree. I would change myself. I would do that. But I think like everyone's had that moment of like, am I a bad person? Do I need a change? Hmm. And especially I think a lot of men during the Me Too era, and I mean like you guys, I'm I'm not a man, so I'm I'm on the opposite spectrum here, but I think a lot of men had that moment where like, oh fuck, what did I do that was wrong? Did I am I a bad person? I'm pretty sure you guys had that moment. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. And I like how the film goes both ways. Like through pursuing legally AJ, we get to Frank, but then also through unveiling Frank, guys like AJ or even Skarsgård, who perceivably hasn't done anything wrong, get to re-examine their own existence mm-hmm. and their own interactions with uh, sexual partners or peers of peers in general, whatever they are. Yeah. And I mean, while he hasn't raped anyone that we know of, and there's no indication that he has. Uh, he is still like enforcing the patriarchal idea of men needing to to be the big strong man. Like he is still reinforcing that those stereotypes. So I I think you're right, Devin. I think that after Me Too, he probably did examine himself and see flaws that he wanted to correct. Now he could have actually asked her like, "Is the reason you don't want to drink because you're worried, or do you do?" do you want me to wait to open the wine like he could have asked her (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but but i also think you're going on a stretch here saying he's reinforcing all these stereotypes like in general he's doing all the best things for her like he could have easily been like fuck off you don't have this airbnb i do yeah which honestly you could definitely see a lot of people doing and like if he said that to her she would have been screwed she would have been in a dilapidated neighborhood where the cops don't respond to anything and she's a young woman like he really helps her out and he gives her the fucking bed I probably wouldn't have given her to bed. I would have been like, I don't know you. I'm going to sleep in the bed. You can have the Yeah, couch. maybe maybe he's overcompensating. But like at the same time, I, what I love what you said, David, is that like it shows that he's not perfection. You know, he is a complicated character. And I think like that is such a good representation of what is currently happening is we're not in the perfection era yet. And there's still work to be done. And I think like what you were saying, David, that's what I love. Keith still has to like find that that balance. Um, what were you going to say, David? Uh, Keith, Keith, I I disagree with you, Rob, because Keith's biggest sin is why everything in the movie happens. He doesn't believe Tess when she tells him, this is what I saw down there. He doesn't believe her or he thinks she's overreacting. And he says, I need to look at this for myself. Um, and then he, he keeps venturing further into the basement. Like he doesn't even say, Hey, there's a secret passage within the secret passage. I'm just going to go down here now. Like. It is his, like, he, he did cause everything. They would have gotten out. People are always, compl- say, I, I hear heard a lot of people complaining about the movie and being like, oh, Tess makes so many dumb decisions. I'm like, no, Keith made this stupid-ass decision. Tess was just trying to make sure he was okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, littered with how many uh, allegories there are in the film, uh, it probably is how you should believe her allegory. It's not even an whatnot. allegory. But I, I don't think his character is particularly, like, real, really stupid. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, he walks down a passage when he probably should have, like, turned tail. But honestly, what would they have done? If they called the cops, the cops wouldn't have shown up. Or maybe they would have if they opened the door and be like, dude, there's some crazy shit down here. I don't know. He's a famous white guy. Who knows? I mean, it, it's also like a uh, a horror movie trope for them to be overly curious. Yeah. 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 And I think, actually, you mentioned tropes now. What I love about both these movies is that the women are modern horror women. Tess says, nope, 
you know, um, Meredith has red flags about everything that's happening. Like she wants to leave. I, I just love that it shows like a modern woman of like, I'm not stupid. Like if there's something wrong with this guy and I think that he, like, I don't feel comfortable with him being in a remote cabin in the woods by ourselves with, the, with this guy that I barely know, like I'm going to have my guard up. And I love that they show that. Yeah, it is kind of funny now that you mention it that in Barbarian, it was the two white guys who were just like, oh, yeah, I'll just walk down the scary hallway without even really thinking <laughs> yeah. about it. And they both just like go for it. You know, it's both of them. I, I feel like that might also, actually AJ be like. Also, AJ brings a tape measure, but no notepad. Does he have a perfect memory? How is he going to remember all these measurements? Dude, br bring something to write on. Come on. <laughs> anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah. So um, what, what do you guys think? Uh, uh, what's it called? Wounded Fawn is saying about the uh, post Me Too movement. I think I, I kind of went to a whole spiel about how I think it's talking about artistic expression and how that's not worth it and how you can relate that to the Me Too. So there's no need for me to retread that ground. But do you guys have anything more to add? I mean, I think that's a really in interesting interpretation and one that I didn't walk away with the first two times that I watched the movie. So I, I love that. And I, I think that that is really fascinating. I think it also just, again, I feel like I'm maybe not the best person. You guys might have to elaborate on this, but I think it does also explore this sense of um, boys will be boys. Like the sense of like there is something within men that mm. um, they feel is innate to do certain things or they were brought up a certain way to do a certain thing, which I think is more a commentary on the patriarchy. And I guess I should stop saying men and I should start saying the patriarchy because it's not all men. And that was really problematic to say, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, cause I think like <laughs> there's points where Bruce is like the red owl, when he sees something beautiful, he just has to act on it. And he keeps, he keeps reinstating that it's, it's beauty, it's beauty, it's beauty. And to me, that's almost like, Ah, I was horny and you know, I can't really control my horniness. Oops. I sexually assaulted a woman because I was horny is kind of like what I got from that. Yeah. I think the only man in both of these movies who does nothing wrong is Andre, the homeless man and barbarian um, who is at first framed as terrifying, but he's actually legitimately trying to help and not for any selfish reasons whatsoever. Just, just wants to make sure they're okay and know what's up a wounded fawn i think is a little simpler in its viewpoint that it kind of just jumps immediately to the extreme that like we're just gonna do a serial killer rapist and i don't i don't think there's any other prominent men in the movie to represent the the spectrum but i it's still challenging us as to whether or not we're able to empathize with him it is still challenging why he would do something like this what causes men to do the worst things that men are capable of yeah and debating the nature versus nurture aspect within it yeah, yeah. I, you saying that there's no other men in, in the film and i like thought for a second i was like actually there is one and he like barely has one line it's the auctioneer at the beginning when he's presenting yeah. the the art piece of the furies there's a funny point where he talks he defines the furies he talks about them as they are revenge upon men. And then he makes a joke where he's like, hide, hide yourself, men, watch out, men. Oh, yeah. And, and all yeah, the men does. in the room laugh. And it's this like perfect small moment where it's like, it presents as like men fearing women. Yeah. And then there is also, now that I think about it, while he's not in the movie, uh, Meredith's ex is talked about a lot that she had a very abusive ex-boyfriend who she dated for three years and finally got out of. From what we gather, it was extremely traumatic. I don't think we get specifics of what he did, but like she is only beginning to move on a year later. And she has a therapy appointment in the beginning that's about 
her learning to forgive herself and recognize that this was not her fault, it was his fault. And I feel like that therapy almost plays as the actual thesis of the film. It, it, it brings us into Bruce's perspective over the course of the movie, and it asks, what causes this? Is he forgivable? And then it eventually comes back to, at the very end, we cut back to Meredith's perspective for the final beat, and it ties back into the therapy to like, no, fuck you. Yeah. This is your fault. It's not her fault. Fuck off. Yeah, which I think is <laughs> possibly problematic in the fact that like it is kind of like man-hating <laughs> in a bit. Like in the hmm. therapy room, it's a female therapist, and, and Meredith goes... I am not going to like forgive him for anything, but in a way that's also saying I'm going to blame him for everything. I disagree. Um, I mean, again, we don't know the specifics of what she's gone through. Like, like we're 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 not given any nuance on it. We are led to believe that she was in a highly abusive relationship, that she was being gaslit like crazy, and the gaslighting probably fucked with her brain and her ability to process things because. That's what these kinds of things do to people. 100%. And the therapy is about undoing that gaslighting. It's about undoing that brainwashing. And to allow her to any attempt to empathize with her abuser is like, no, fuck that. She let her recover. Yeah. I mean, I haven't done research on therapy of abuse survivors, but I think that that is accurate to how abuse survivors learn to move on yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's not her fault it's not her fault yeah, in any yeah. and i don't know anything about this either so yeah I, yeah yeah i agree yeah but maybe a less strong point that i can agree with you with Devin is that we are getting a much less sympathetic male perspective in wounded fawn than we are in the three different perspectives we're getting in barbarian i, I would i would not argue either movie is misandrous i think you would have to be a lot more extreme in wounded fawn to tread on that kind of territory because just criticizing the idea of the muse is not misandrist. Misandrist meaning man-hating? Man-hating, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, as opposed to misogynist. Gotcha. gotcha. Well, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I just wanted to say, like, yeah, and this isn't necessarily, like, my view. I'm kind of, like, talking through the different perspectives of, like, how we can be seeing these movies. So I'm just, like, kind of exploring it with you guys. I'm not saying, like, this is my be-all, end-all yeah. takeaway mm -hmm. from this film. I'm just, like presenting it as like, well, what if this is the takeaway? No, I, I think that's what's so cool about these discussions is often I come away with different viewpoints. Like for instance, the red owl, I didn't see as a representation of Athena. And I didn't quite <laughs> view this film initially as a criticism of certain types of art. Never would have walked away with that. So I feel like a point we're kind of dancing around with this conversation about uh, misandry, even if none of us think it is misandry, is um, are the punishments in both movies appropriate like did bruce deserve to die did aj deserve to die did frank deserve to live a very long life into old age but at least a miserable one where he's in his dungeon watching uh his his snuff tapes over and over until he kills himself i don't get the idea that <laughs> frank's life was miserable up until the end at least he was probably living the time of his life he could just bang all his daughters and no one did anything about it the fucking sicko which I think is very fitting. Like, it's almost realistic, right? Like, yeah, that's how a lot of people, like, in the real world, those people don't get punished a lot of the time. And that's how they have to end up living. Yeah, they just yeah. live until they die. And, like, we 
you know, as Americans, we tend to look at things very provincially and only put the uh, microscope against American society. But in other societies, it's way fucking worse. What do you think yeah. they're doing in Iraq or Afghanistan right now with the Taliban back in control? It's way fucking worse than it is here. There's a lot of people like that, even out in like Saudi Arabia and whatever. Uh, but I think to answer your actual question about uh, whether or not the punishments are justified, I mean, it's a hard question to ask. Like, it's a horror movie. Uh, no, no one should be fucking have their arm ripped off, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But no, uh, Frank didn't <laughs> get what he deserved. The guy in a wounded fawn did. And AJ, uh, no, he should have been on trial. It would have been more humiliating for him. There you go. But it would have been a worse movie if that happened. Yeah. So you think Bruce did deserve to die? Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. People like that deserve to die. As a society, we shouldn't because we hold ourselves to a higher moral standard. But of course, certain people don't deserve to live. It's, you know, it's a change. Like, you can be anti-capital punishment, but still think that certain people deserve death. But we are better than that. We don't give everyone what they deserve. Justice isn't just about deserving. That's like vengeance. Kind of like the difference between the Furies and the whatever the hell the other name was that I said before. <laughs> yeah, I would agree that it's it's hard when looking at it in a horror movie because people are going to die in horror movies most of the time. Um, what I do love about Bruce's death is that it's by his own hand. Um, I think that's that's well-deserved. It sucks that Frank dies by his own hand, but again, it's making a comment on like, that's what it ends up being. They have control in, in the real world. Like People don't get to enact vengeance upon most some people. You know, Sometimes they just go on with the sins that they were living. So to play devil's advocate, obviously I've expressed that I don't think that the Red Owl should be separated from Bruce, that I think they're one and the same. However, if you go along with it for a minute and say, what if the Red Owl is a separate entity, then it is removed from him before he dies. So does he still deserve to die if the Red Owl is no longer a part of him? Well, I don't think the Red Owl is removed. I think it's just shown to him. Well, we literally uh... see him take the bird out of his brain. Yeah, but what is actual literal in this highly surrealist movie? <laughs> Lots of questions there. Uh, <laughs> surrealist movies, they're so fun to talk about. Yeah, I, but I think in the end, though, he still plays himself as a victim. Like I was saying before, he's a victim to the mm. world and still doesn't admit that he did anything wrong. So, yes, I still think that he he deserves it. Okay. Uh, David, David what were, what's your answer to your own question, I guess? I, I I am a pacifist, and I think that our justice system is overall bad, so I think that he deserves a worse punishment than the majority of people, but I don't, I don't, I don't like killing as retribution. I don't feel like that's a good punishment. Obviously, it is a horror movie, so in the context of a horror movie, sure. And I actually think Barbarian kind of subtly makes this point as well, when AJ's singing the song, it's uh, Ricky Tiki Tacky, something like that. Um, and basically, it's about how he used to believe that there was uh, an authority would kill the snakes for him. But now as he's matured, he realizes he needs to kill them himself. And ironically, he is the snake. And the idea winds up coming down to that the authorities aren't actually going to take care of these people. So there needs to be a, ret a retributive justice from the victims instead that it, it it winds up coming down to Tess needs to do whatever the fuck she can to get out of there. Meredith needs to do whatever the fuck she can to stop Bruce from doing this again. 
the mother in Barbarian absolutely did not deserve to die, but that was I kind of a mercy kill. <laughs> because her life was fucking miserable. It's yeah. really sad, actually. When you want, She, like, accepts it. She's like, yes, it's okay. You can kill me. It's really sad. It, it is really yeah. sad. But it's a beautiful moment when, like, she it finally is. gets what she does want, which is a daughter to, or some, uh, it's just somebody to care for her, honestly. And Tess does that. Yeah, Tess shows her empathy in her final moments. Yeah. Which is nice. Okay. Uh, now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section, where we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off this week with a wounded fawn is Devin Shepard. I. I really liked this movie. I mean, obviously, it's a a different movie. It's very surrealist, but like, come on. It's so cool to watch this movie as like a love story to like Italian 70s cinema. It looks gorgeous. It was shot on 16. The colors are so gaiello. It's so awesome. The reds, I mean, come on. Anyone who loves horror movies is just going to fan over that in general. All the artistic pieces of this film, I really loved. The costuming, I'm obsessed. I want all of the outfits that are in there. And I think the conversations that were brought up are really interesting. And I like that it leads to so many different interpretations and like continues the conversation in a post-Me Too era about men and women and and their experiences. Um, And now I love it even more after everything that Rob brought, brought up about art and artistry. And I think like that adds such a layer to it. I was, you know, taken out of it at certain times, but I I did really enjoy a lot of the moments of this movie. I have a problem with Josh Rubin. I just don't like him. So that was like, like my only part of this movie. I could stand him in this movie. So like, whatever. Um, I thought the performances were great. Yeah, the writing's a little, the structure is really cool. And there's a, it could have been strengthened, but it's an indie movie. What can you do? So I'm going to give this three bones. David, what did you think of a wounded fawn? Wow. I do like Josh Rubin. I, 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 I have no problem with him. Well, my only problem with him is that he won't let Jeff build a box fort in the office. And if you get that reference, good for you. <laughs> um, this movie looks really cool. It is shot on 16 mil. I don't think we mentioned that. And I just like the vibe and the style of it. Uh, I especially like everything right in the midpoint when it like begins to go full surreal. And you have like this weird scene where he and Meredith, who's now alive again for some reason, are lying there and basking in the sun. And then uh, Kate shows up and it's like this really weird imagery where they're covering half their faces. Like this movie has fucking style and it is really cool. And I enjoyed a lot of it. There are definitely issues. Um, I know we talked about why Meredith, that had they give reasons for Meredith to stay there. I don't actually think they did enough of that. I did not understand why she was still there at some point. I'm like, just fucking leave. What are you doing? (laughs) Ultimately, it, it just, it kind of lost me a bit in the second half where I think it, it dials its style up to 11, but it doesn't really have enough of a plot to go with it. The The perspective change didn't really work for me. There, there, there was something off. It needed, more, it needed more story. It didn't feel like they had enough story to go through the runtime, and it just drags on at some point, despite not even being that long. But I will still give it two bones. Uh, I, 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 I liked it a lot, and then it, went, it kept going. <laughs> two bones. Okay, uh, so I disagree with a lot of what you guys said, but not all of it. 
So for me, it took me a while to get into the movie. I thought the second half was far superior to the first half because the acting is not a strong suit of this film. I'm not huge on Josh Rubin either, but I don't think the actresses did particularly that great either. So it, it definitely kind of looked like an indie. I don't know if this was mentioned, but it was shot on 16. Yeah, so this movie's at the best when it's surrealist. Uh, there's not much plot going on, and the surrealism imagery, I think, is okay. I actually really don't think it's that great looking of a movie. I think it's like a valiant indie effort, which is cool enough, you know? The ending was fine. Yeah, like Two Bones, I don't particularly like like it that much, but it was kind of cool, so I, the second half got me. I like the themes. So switching off to the next film, David, why don't you start us off? What do you, what do you think with uh, Barbarian? <laughs> okay. First off, shout to Zach Cooperstein, the DP. Uh, I worked with him for a week on Eyes of My Mother way back in 2015. Good guy, uh, good DP. I'm very glad to see that he is working well. I messaged him after I saw the movie for the first time and congratulated him. Yeah, what do I have to say about this movie? Uh, I actually, I liked it more the second time. I mean, you know, the first watch through, it has like all that just shock value of just all the twists and churns and being like, what the fuck is going on? Where is this going? But I think on the second watch, it kind of came together more that I'd heard a lot of people talking about it. And I feel like I misjudged it a bit at first. I kind of saw it as being very shallow. And now watching it again, I'm realizing that there are a lot more layers than I thought. The class themes had went completely over my head the first watch. I I literally thought the block was abandoned because of Frank. Like, I straight up did not understand the class themes at all. Um, and I'm glad that I've now been shown those. I like it. It, it is funny. I do think, again, that the first 40 minutes is the strongest part. I think that after it cuts to AJ, I still like a lot of the stuff with AJ. It just does feel a little bit like a different movie, but I still like all the different movies within there. So I'm going to give this one three bones. Rob, what do you think? Uh, oh, hey, again, I'm going to disagree with David. I think it picks up pace after the first act because uh, the first act isn't bad by any means. I do like watching... Uh, Tess come home and deal with uh, Skarsgård, but it's kind of like generic. Like there's nothing new to the horror movie there. Once they switch over to AJ, I'm like, oh shit, this is cool. And then when the reveal of the mother character, which is totally like a reference to Castle Freak, which by the way, it's not a good movie, but it's like iconic. So I'm like, oh cool. It's like a Castle Freak thing. Uh, I think this is a heavily layered movie and it's very well done. I like Justin Long. Uh, I, I like the monster. I know a good friend of mine really didn't like her design and he was like oh it's just a naked lady and i'm like yeah that's kind of scary it's cool breastfeeding scene with the bubba is like really gross and neat it's also directed by the guy from what is kids you know and i'm a giant fan of theirs so it's pretty cool to watch him make a movie that's a horror movie he's made other movies yeah i like this one i think it's quite good i think it's a very fairly well done horror film i'm gonna give it two and a half bones devin Let's, let's close out the episode. What do you think? Um, big surprise. I have elements of both your reviews in my review. I agree with Rob. I think the first act was slow. I, I wish I hadn't seen the trailer before watching this film because I think I would have had a different takeaway from it the first time I watched it. I would have been probably a little more skeptical, but I knew he wasn't a bad guy. So I didn't really feel any tension in that first act. And I think like it worsens on the second watching because you already know what's going to happen. So it becomes rather boring. But after Bill Skarsgård goes away, the movie's fucking fantastic, and I love it. And I love Justin Long, so we're 
it makes it that much better. Um, when I saw it in the theater for the first time, me and a bunch of girls were like, woo, it was funny. I don't know why we love him so much. But anyway, there is so much more here in terms of what it's saying. And there's so many like small detail things that say so much. And like, I feel like we could have talked about this for so much longer if we wanted to talk about beyond gender. There's so much that it's saying here. And that I love. I think the structure is fantastic. I mean, the fake redemption point was great. So many surprises throughout the film. I love the characters. I think they're so much fun. And it's funny. Like this is, it's a funny movie. Like it's just entertaining. The set's fantastic. Zach Cooperstein did a wonderful job with camera. Yeah, there are so many amazing things that I love about this film. However, I do agree with Rob's friend and I want to do more exploration here. The one thing I keep walking away with is the monster being a naked woman problematic and I have issue with it. It's it's hard to to see a male fam- filmmaker using the female form in a horrific way. And I know that there's more to it than that. Again, by looking back more at like Frank being the one to create this monster in the first place, but it's also the audience perspective of monsterizing the female form. So more exploration there I need to I need to do, but I still have issue with it. Also the motherhood, I think there's there's something to that as well as like horrifying breastfeeding and motherhood and i think it's it's a little bit iffy i want to say three bones for me oh i'm glad you liked it so much anyway that's it for this episode of cadaver dogs podcast thanks again much and you'll see the hounds later bye 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 bye